sensation, the soul, the spirit, the universal soul or spirit, and also name of a reformer of the Vaishnava faith, born about 1485, actually 1486. So, so Lord Chaitanya is infinite consciousness, and he's the source of our consciousness. So, uh, oh, we have some new admittees here. So actually, we are conscious, we are alive, we exist because of Lord Chaitanya. Our existence depends ontologically on his existence. Our consciousness depends on his consciousness. Our life depends on his life. And so it's just very interesting I, as, for me as a person who is interested in language, especially Sanskrit, that of all the infinite variety of names that Lord Krishna might have chosen, he chose the name Chaitanya. And of course, his followers... Oh, either were being invaded by extraterrestrials... No, you're not the one people have to mute yourself, please. Yes, everyone has... You have to mute yourself. Not physically, you mean like their computer. So Lord Chaitanya, I mean, Krishna himself, nothing could be more important. Nothing could be more glorious than the fact that the Supreme Lord himself came to our world. Here we are on this tiny planet that the human beings are destroying as fast as they can. And it is obviously Kali Yuga. All the conditions are there. Krishna says, yada yada hi dharmasya glanir bhavati varata. Whenever there is dharma glani, whenever there is dharma glani. And, and so let's look carefully at Krishna's own words, why he comes to this world. Krishna explains himself, and we should pay very close attention to what he says. So the word glani in Sanskrit means exhaustion so when dharma is exhausted uh when dharma is weakened or decreased uh yada yada he yada means when yada yada in sanskrit means whenever so yada yada he dharmasya glanir bhavati bharata there is a weakening there is a uh, disease of dharma exhaustion of dharma then uh and krishna says abhutanam adharmasya dharma means justice it means that people do what they should do for example uh a man a woman a king a teacher a business person a farmer a worker uh a governor Everyone has dharma because, as Prabhupada explained, the word dharma comes from the, from the Sanskrit root dhar, which means to sustain, to uphold. For example, because Krishna holds the chakra weapon, therefore he's called chakradhara. Or because Krishna holds a club, gada, he's called gadadhara. Because Krishna holds up a mountain, He's called Giridhari. 
And so it's from the same root, actually. So the word dharma um, means the principles, the laws that sustain the universe. I mean, for example, consider the physical universe. Krishna has created certain laws, like the laws discovered by Newton, the law of gravity or Newton's laws of motion. And then Einstein, you know, I don't know, his space-time phenomenon and so on. So all these laws, the, the, the reason we can mass produce things, the fact that all of our computers work right now, even though they were mass produced, is because we can understand and utilize the physical laws of nature even at the subatomic level. So for example, there's the word electron, which is some subatomic particle or wave or whatever it is. And uh, therefore you get electronics by understanding the laws that govern the actions and reactions and interactions of electrons and other subatomic particles. So the universe is lawful. The universe is lawful, in fact, the, rev- the so-called scientific revolution that really picked up steam in the 1600s, it was actually based on a spiritual assumption. It was based on a spiritual assumption. And I'll explain what it is. Because when the scientific revolution took place in the 1600s, it was during the Renaissance. The word Renaissance in French means rebirth. So rebirth of what? What was being reborn? Why did they call it the Renaissance? Interestingly, what was being reborn was Vedic culture. Because if you look at the history of the West, of Europe back then, America was whatever it was back then. um, It originally had its own culture, Greco-Roman culture. And if you study it carefully, if you study Roman Greco-Roman culture, if you study Greco-Roman religion, what it obviously is, I call uh, Mediterranean Hinduism. It's just Mediterranean Hinduism. The the similarities between the you know all the dharmas that pop up in India, what we now generally call, obviously with not much historical precision, but what we now call Hinduism, uh, there are hundreds, if not thousands of similarities with Greco-Roman religion because it's coming from the same culture. If you study ancient Greek and ancient Latin, then uh, it's in, in, in many actually amazing ways, very close to Sanskrit. I'll just give you one example. We may find this a little hard to follow, but uh, Gornitai Prabhu will explain it to you afterwards if you have any trouble with this technical Sanskrit grammar. And that is, I'll just give one example of the amazing uh, resemblance between, let's say, ancient Greek and Sanskrit. Sanskrit is an inflected language. It's an inflected language. What that means is, rather than showing relationships between, I'm leaving out some of the technical grammatical terminology, but rather than show relationships between words through prepositions, for example, I go to the house, I go with you, I come from the house, I am in the house. 
So all these <clears throat> prepositional senses to be with, in, from, or, or to be going to or toward, or to give something unto, like I bow unto, so I bow unto Krishna. So all these senses to, unto, from, with, and all these things that we express with prepositions in inflected languages like Sanskrit or uh, ancient Greek or, or Latin, you just change the ending of the word. So for example, if I say, just to give a simple example, gache in Sanskrit means I go. So if I say gache krishnena, that means I go with Krishna. If I say I go unto Krishna, or I bow unto Krishna, nama krishnaya. If, it's, if I say I'm coming from Krishna, I would say agache krishnat. If I say that, that belongs to Krishna, that is Krishna's, apostrophe S, I would say etat krishnasya. Or if I'm calling Krishna, speaking to Krishna, I would say, hey, Krishna. And so if I say everything is in Krishna, I would say, for example, sarvam krishne bhavati or sarvam krishne asti or something like that. So the reason I mention this, just to, you know, how Sanskrit is an inflected language is because we study ancient Greek. It not only is also an inflected language, but it is structured almost exactly like Sanskrit. Just to give one example, and, 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 and I, then I will free you from this all this grammar. So before you start crying out in pain or consider, call your lawyer and sue me. Um, so for example, in Sanskrit, there are eight cases. And so there are three cases that are almost identical. The nominative, when let's say Krishna is the subject of a sentence, or the accusative, when Krishna is the object of the sentence, like Pashe Krishnam, I see Krishna. Or the vocative, when you're addressing, hey Krishna. So three, these three forms, the way they're conjugated, uh, actually, I'm sorry, declined, verbs are conjugated. So the way these three cases, as they're called, vivaktis in Sanskrit, the way they are declined, is very, very similar. You find the exact same thing in Greek. The nominative, accusative, and vocative stand apart and are declined almost exactly as in Sanskrit. The other cases called oblique are different. So also Greek has a singular, dual, and plural. So you get all these highly technical similarities, say, between ancient Greek and Sanskrit, which cannot be accident, which show they're coming from the same language. Now, I mention that because um, how do we even have the power of language? How do we even have the, because language is so technical. I'm speaking right now, I'm not using a lot of big words, but if you actually analyze this sort of, you know, technically, mathematically, so you could translate it into computer code, our speech is extremely complex and it follows laws. So around the, so in the Greco-Roman world, which was, as I said, very much Mediterranean Hinduism, uh, in the Greco-Roman world, uh, they, had, they had various interesting concepts. One similarity with Hinduism or Vedic culture is, just as in the Rig Veda, 
it said that uh, the truth is one, but different people invoke it or, or, or call upon that God or supreme truth in different ways. You find the same belief in Greco-Roman culture. They have what is called interpretatio greca, the Greek interpretation, or interpretatio romana, the Roman interpretation, which means exactly that there's one God or one set of demigods, but different people simply use different names. So you have the exact same approach to the multiplicity of deities in the Greco-Roman culture and the Sanskrit culture. Now, there's another similarity between, you could call it roughly Hinduism and the original Western culture, which was being reborn. That's what the Renaissance is. It's coming back to that Vedic culture. You could say sort of a Mlecha version in the Mediterranean world. Although actually the people in Mediterranean, the Romans, they were largely vegetarian. But anyway, so um, they had another view in this ancient world, which you also find, of course, in, in the Bhagavad Gita and in the Bhagavatam. And this relates to science and it relates to the word Dharma. I'm actually coming all the way back. I took you on the scenic route for which you don't have to pay extra. But uh, you see that, Nita, even at my age, I still remember what I was talking about 10 minutes ago. So the idea is that um, they said that God is an infinitely rational being, not just God, not just a person with anger management issues, jealousy issues, and basically a God who really needs a good psychiatrist. But actually, rather than that, God is an infinitely rational creature. And therefore, when he creates the universe, the creation itself is law-abiding. It is a rational universe, and therefore, it's possible to have a science because you could not have a physical science if physical nature did not follow laws for obvious reasons. There would be no laws of nature. There would be no laws of science because there are no laws. It would be a completely random, chaotic universe. Now, the word that the, they used in this ancient civilization, the ancient Europe, the word they used to describe the infinite, perfect reason, rationality of God is the word logos, for which we get the word logic. In fact, that's why they put this word logos at the end of all the different sciences, like geology, geologos. Geo in Greek means earth. The science, the logical description or investigation of the earth is called geo. Logos, geology, or bios in a Greek meant life. So the rational study of life is bios, logos, or biology, and so on and so forth. So um, now getting back to the word dharma. The word dharma is also the Sanskrit word for law. It's also this, and it's also used in Sanskrit to mean a law of nature. For example, uh, in the Mahabharata, a poetic way of saying uh, someone died is by saying that uh, the Kala Dharma overtook that person. 
Kala, Kala Dharma Atiyagat. It, it, it over, literally overcame the person. Atiyagat. The, 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 the law of time. Kala Dharma. So, therefore, Dharma, of course, is a very important word in Vedic culture. And so, when Krishna says, Yada Yada, whenever, Yada Yada Hi Dharmasya, Glanir, Bhavati Bharata, whenever there's a Dharma Glani, a weakening, a confusion, uh, a degradation of Dharma, and Abhutanam Adharmasya. Adharma means injustice and being an outlaw. People are acting literally like outlaws outside the law. Tadat Manam Sajanya. Then Krishna says, I manifest myself. So, because it's interesting, Krishna, you know, you could say Krishna says, then I come, but he doesn't say I come. He says he manifests himself because he was always there. Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, Maya Tatamidang Sarvam. I pervade this entire world. So Krishna is always everywhere. He's always everywhere. But what is called his avatara, his descent, what's really happening, he's just letting us see him. He's just letting us see him. He was always there. So just as your body functions according to laws, and when your body is not functioning the way it should, it's called disease, and you have a problem. Mental disease, physical disease. And so in the same way, human beings, because they're endowed with free will, unlike physical objects, are supposed to voluntarily, consciously choose to follow the laws of God, dharma. And when they do not do so, Krishna comes because there's a service contract on the universe. You know, it's like you buy a computer and you buy the service contract. If it's broken, they fix it. So Krishna is so kind, he actually gives us a service contract on the universe. So that when things are going crazy, when people are misbehaving, when basically some of the crazy people we've seen recently, you know, become leaders. um, At that time, Krishna comes. And so therefore, Lord Chaitanya, who's Krishna, he came. Lord Chaitanya came for those reasons, and he chose the name Chaitanya. He could have called himself anything. He's God. But he calls himself Chaitanya because he's bringing people back to consciousness. He is omniscient, infinitely conscious, and he's bringing us back to our pure original consciousness. And therefore, he's Chaitanya. So uh, those are some of the points. Uh, any questions so far? If you, if you you can speak, those of you who are on chat can speak. I, I'm sorry, I'm Zoom. Hare Krishna Maharaj. So I have a question that um, it says, you know, that I come because there's a decline in, in dharma, but then the end it says, Sarva Dharma Paritajya, to give up all this dharma. <laughs> 
Yes, very good. Um, yeah, that verse I think is 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 pretty regularly misunderstood because, as you know, Krishna spoke the Gita to Arjuna just to convince him not to give up his dharma. And at the end of the Gita, his Kshatriya dharma. And the Kshatriya dharma, because you have Varna and Ashram. So his Varna dharma, as a Kshatriya, is intimately connected to Ashrama dharma. Because as Arjuna says, if I fight and kill all the Kshatriyas, no one will protect their daughters and wives. We'll get Varna Sankara, Varna mixing, and so on. So Krishna is convincing Arjuna not to give up his dharma. So what does that verse mean? Sarva dharman parityaja. Uh, first of all, I think to understand this verse, you have to see that Krishna is clearly drawing a contrast between two opposites. And the two opposites are the word sarva, all or every, or every, and the word eka, which means one, one alone. And so Krishna says, sarva dharman parityaja, giving up all dharmas, mam ekang sharanam braja, what you should give up all dharmas for is the context of finding ultimate shelter. So we have to perform our uh, swabhava ja dharma. We have to perform the duty that's born of our nature. However, let's say you're a Brahman or a Kshatriya or whatever, a Grihastra, Sannyasi, Brahmacharya, performing those duties nicely will not give you ultimate shelter. And that's what the Bhagavatam says. When people perform their Varnashrama Vibhagasha, uh, when they perform their duty nicely, but but uh, the real point is to satisfy Hari, Krishna, and the Dharma, it's actually Dharma uh, Su means very, and Anushtita. Stita means to stand in something to abide by something. Anustita means to consistently, to steadily abide in something. Anustita. And su means very. So dharma, dharma, su anustita, pungsang. When human beings perform their varnashram duties very carefully and very steadily, but vishaksena, kata sujaknot pada yejadiratim. If the performance of your Varnasham Dharma does not produce in you a rati, a love, a love, a devotion for Vishaksena, which means literally Krishna whose power extends in all directions. Vishaksena Katasu, if that does not produce in you a, a, a love, an attachment to the kata the descriptions and narrations of the Lord whose power extends everywhere, then shama eva hi kevalam. Eva hi kevalam is about as emphatic as you can get in Sanskrit. 
because Eva means it's just that and nothing else. He indeed kevalam and nothing else. It's like it's ex- Eva he kevalam means it's shrama. It's just labor. You just worked hard, but you didn't win the prize. You know, it's like you spend a lot of money, buy some nice clothes, dress up, drive a hundred miles, spend your last dollar on gas, apply for a job, you don't get the job. Shama. Shama means labor, like tiring labor, just working hard. Shama. Eva, he, it is simply labor and nothing else. That's what the that's what the Bhagavatam is saying. So therefore. Krishna says, Mam Eva Shadanam, Mam Ekang Shadanam, come or go to me alone for shelter. So you give up all of the dharmas as your ultimate shelter. You don't give up the dharma itself, obviously, because at the end of the Gita, Krishna asked Arjun, Did you understand? And Arjun said, He didn't say, Yes, I'm out of here. I'm leaving the battlefield. Uh, you know, text me and let me know what happened. Arjun says that, okay, Krishna, stitosmi, gata sandeha, my doubt is gone. Uh, I'm situated properly. I, I, I know what I should do, and therefore, I'll fight. So if Arjun was supposed to give up his dharma, that means he didn't understand the Gita. And he did fight. We know that after hearing the Bhagavad Gita, in fact, Arjun did fight. And so therefore it would be absurd to say that Krishna is simply asking you to give up all dharmas. He's saying that give up all dharmas as your ultimate shelter in life. And that's what he said a few verses earlier. Come Eva. Sharanangacha, go to him alone, to the Lord, for shelter. Sarva bhavena bharata, with all your existence, literally, sarva bhavena. So that's the point. You do your dharma, whether you're grihasta or brahmacharya or sannyasi, whatever, vanaprasta, poor vanaprasta is always neglected in this. Anyway, so you do your asham dharma, whatever it is, you do your Varna Dharma, but you don't think, as many people do think in India, for example, and also in the West, that if I just do my duty, if I'm a good father, a good mother, a good this, a good that, I'll go to heaven. You know, that's karma yoga in the minds of some people. Karma yoga means uh, that I, uh, you know, just do my duty, my mundane duty, and then that's it. And that's what Krishna is talking about. He's talking about the false karma yoga where there's no bhakti. That's not karma yoga. If you're just a good father, a good mother, a good doctor, a good lawyer, whatever, you're not doing karma yoga. You're doing karma. It may be sattvika karma. It may be karma and goodness, but it's karma. Karma yoga means you connect your karma to God. And you connect it to God by offering it to him. By doing it for his pleasure. If you're not doing it for his pleasure, you're just a good person, quote unquote. Fine, that's karma. Sattvika karma. Karma in the mode of goodness. It's not karma yoga. 
That's what Krishna's talking about. That's the whole point here, really. So, uh, so any other questions? If not, I'm going to auction off some of my personal items like old shirts and... Um, so, so Maharaj, get back to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. <laughs> he also came to establish the Dharma. Yes. Age And what yes. you said that... Uh, that was from Bhagavatam that if you don't know Rati, it will only shram. Yes. So, Because if you look at all of Lord Chaitanya's followers... They were in love with Krishna. They weren't just doing quote unquote good deeds in the world. They were they were loving servants of Krishna. And and as Prabhupada always said very brilliantly that Krishna said surrender to me, but people couldn't figure out what he meant. So he came again as his own devotee to um, to show you. Okay, this is how you do it. It's isn't it. It's just like the teacher may say to the young student, okay, write A, B, C, D. But the student can't do it. The teacher goes to the blackboard or whiteboard or whatever board and, okay, like this. See how I'm writing. So Krishna's teaching, by example, here's what I meant in Bhagavad Gita. So the question arises that Mahaprabhu is a Krishna himself. Yes. We came from India. I, I had, I have only introduction to Mahaprabhu was Gita Press, uh, uh, cartoon kind of like that. The only thing I knew about Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, although my father was and, and Goswami literature and everything, but all the all was uh, it was literary and, but no idea until I came to United States and met the devotees and heard about Sri Prabhupada. So why this happened? Why it was so uncovered Mahaprabhu's what what could be the reason, Maharaj? Because he didn't want to deprive his devotees of all the fun. <laughs> just like just like we see in India right now, that there are you know hundreds and not thousands of, of very good devotees in ISKCON. And they're you know engaged in so many very impressive programs. And so if Lord Chaitanya, if, if everyone in India already knew these things, what would they do? They'd just sit around and gain weight, I suppose. That's uh, so you know eating prasadam. So Lord Chaitanya, he that's his kindness that he gave them lots of service to do. You see, sometimes parents are doing something, and the little child will come and say, "No, no, let me do it. Let me do it." And the child, the little child gets gets irritated if the parent keeps doing it. No, 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 I want to do it. So that's Krishna's mercy. He's letting us do it. Otherwise, what would we do all day? That what you said about Prashadam, only thing in that book I remembered from Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, that if Prashadam fell on the on the on the on the floor, he will eat it. So that was my excuse. I will eat Prashadam anywhere. So that that only thing I remember from my childhood that Mahaprabhu that was mercy of Prashadam. Well, yeah, I can see you did not have a thorough education and go to your Vaishnavism before you came to America. <laughs> so, anything else? Maharaj, you mentioned uh, briefly about Vanaprastha. So, in, in today's context, what does that mean? Does that mean retirement? And uh, uh, if so, what age should that be? 
Um, Vana Presta, literally departing for the forest. Vana Presta. Um, the age is when your children are grown. I don't mean like a you know, 45-year-old child living at home. That seems to be the custom nowadays, but when your children are when your children are grown and um, you know, they can basically take care of themselves, then um, then you're Vana Presta. So actually, if someone who has grown children should not call themselves a grihasta, just like I can't call myself a grihasta. I was once a grihasta, actually. I had a short but glorious <clears throat> period of my life in grihasta ashram. And so, um, so yes, when your children are grown, and as far as the duties, the duties are that the idea is when you're young, when you're just a child, then you go to the Guru Kula, you serve the Guru, then most people get married and there's so many responsibilities to maintain a family. It's, it's very, there's a lot to do. And so the idea is once the children are grown, then you have the privilege, the opportunity to again focus on spiritual activities, serving the Guru. And we know what it means to serve Prabhupada. He made it very clear. He wants us to spread his mission. Krishna himself says it in Bhagavad Gita, that one who teaches this to the faithful uh, is the greatest devotee. No one will ever be a better devotee than him. I rest my case. You'll find that at the end of Bhagavad Gita. Krishna says, there will never be a person more dear to me than the one who teaches this knowledge, this Bhagavad Gita. So those who are Vanaprastha, those whose children are grown and uh, not in jail, they, um, or if they are, you know, the, 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 your duty is to, um, your duty is to, um, to preach. Your duty is to preach. So Nitai, Gorasundra Prabhu, you and uh, Mean Avatar, you are great devotees. You've done so much service. You've been faithfully serving the Vaishnavas forever. And uh, so you have this opportunity to spread Prabhupada's mission. Of course, you've been doing that forever, but. Not, not growing, Maharaj, it's just. Stagnant. Help us on the way. <laughs> I've been waiting for it, Maharaj. Actually, Manjuri has mystic powers. She just hasn't manifested them. She's shy. <laughs> so, Maharaj, does Avanaprastha also means leaving the home? Or can you stay at home? Oh, yeah, you can stay at home, but it's, it's a question of what do you do at home? It's not a question of, you don't have to, you know, go camp out in your backyard or something or in, you know, public park. It's just a question. It's a question of what do you do at home? If you're using your home to, to spread Prabhupada's mission, then why not? 
people went to the forest in the past because they had extended families, actually all over the world, but, and also certainly in India. And so the family attachment was like overwhelming. And so you physically had to go somewhere. But now, nowadays, they're just nuclear families, right? It's like, I mean, consider when Raghunath Das Goswami wanted to join the Hare Krishna movement, his father had him arrested, imprisoned, you know, a little domestic jail with, with, a, with a guard. And, and that was all legal. I mean, you, you could arrest, you could kidnap your own children, you know, when they're adults, and you could imprison them, and that was legal. So because you have, you have these extended families, basically in the pre-industrial world, the Industrial Revolution, you know, ended these extended families. But so if you wanted to get away and serve Krishna, a lot of times you really had to get out of Dodge. You know, you really had to just get out of town and go far because you couldn't. They literally they could come after you and just arrest you. But nowadays, not the problem. You know, we have these nuclear families, and now there's they split the atom. So, so therefore, yeah, use your home, preach. So, any other questions? I guess Ananda Leela, we have no questions from the um, wide world out there. Mark, I have a quick question. Yes. You made the distinction between doing karma and karma yoga. I, I think I know the answer to the question, but you know, being that you're the expert, I'll ask. Uh, is there any distinction between, in, in, in that sense, devotional service? Is there any distinction of that nature when it comes to devotional service? Okay, I'll tell you the difference between, between karma yoga and bhakti yoga but you have to put another coin in the meter. Okay. <laughs> okay, we're, we're running over time now, so just joking, I'm just joking. So, karma yoga and bhakti yoga are really on the, it's the same path. But at a certain stage in your spiritual life, you're sort of attached to a certain kind of work, you know, whatever work you do in the world. But because you're a devotee, you try to do it for Krishna. You try to offer the fruit to Krishna in some way or other. As you advance, your attachment is not just to a varna and ashram, like I'm attached to being a householder, having a family, or I'm attached to my career. But because I'm a devotee, I do these things for Krishna. In bhakti yoga, your attachment is actually to Krishna. Your attachment is really to Krishna and, you know, by circumstances, you may have to continue a certain career or you have family. And so the circumstances are such that you, you know, you have to do those things. However, in your heart, your real attachment is to Krishna. And therefore, you look for every possible opportunity to, to do those things for Krishna or to use whatever you have, skill, money, a house, fame, you're a personal friend of Acharya Dave, you know, just all these assets. So you, you try to do these things, use all these things for Krishna. Thank you, Maharaj. My pleasure.
Thank you, Maharaj. We definitely use, uh, using our chat is there for that, for sure. Actually, <laughs> there's a question that came in here on chat. Is there a certain threshold of a dharma that compels Krishna to send to earth? Um, well, if you study world history, you know, 500 and whatever years ago, you just take a look. The world was pretty crazy. And... Um, and of course, now Krishna appeared, Lord Chaitanya appeared about uh, 435 years ago. I always joke that for the next 500 years, people say that Lord Chaitanya came 500 years ago. Or maybe for the next 2,000 years, they'll say, yeah, Lord Chaitanya came 500 years ago. But actually, you have to update that every year. So, um, and now Lord Chaitanya is still present. Lord Chaitanya is present in all of you. Whenever we try sincerely, whenever we try sincerely to serve Lord Chaitanya through his pure devotee Prabhupada, uh, then Lord Chaitanya is present because the word represent, to present something means to make it present and to represent it is to make it present again. So at, the more we represent Lord Chaitanya, the more he's present again in this world. So, thank you all very much. And uh, I hope, I know I've said this many, actually I have offered to go there many times, but by the some cruel twist of fate, every time I tried to go there, uh, you guys were going somewhere else. And I never believed that you were trying to avoid me. I never thought that. I mean, you know, were I more disposed toward paranoia I might have thought that but I think I'm not paranoid by nature and so I didn't think that so um, Matsya I just Matsya hasn't forgotten how to make her vegetable soup has she no she's muted but Maraj there's a, a question that came through on chat yes wow. yes oh oh on chat oh I answered that question that question when I answered I'm his question yeah my yeah. bad, Manjuri. I just read it. I thought it just popped up. That's my no. bad. That's okay, Manjuri. We we still love you. Thank you, Raj. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you all very much. It's a pleasure. Thank you, pleasure to see all of you, and I hope I'll see you in your three-dimensional forms very soon. <laughs> thank you, Maharaj. Thank you, Maharaj. Thank you, Maharaj. Thank you, Maharaj. Thank you. 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 Th